Hello, Typology Tribe. Ian Morgan Cron here. You are listening to the podcast on which we explore the mystery of the human personality and the human adventure. And today we have a tremendous show. We need to welcome Enneagram 3 with a two wing and author of the new book, Energy Rising, the Neuroscience of Leading with Emotional Power, Dr. Julia DeGangi. Welcome to the show. Oh, oh my gosh. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it's always interesting, like when people say your Enneagram type, it's it, sometimes for me almost feels like a little bit of a, maybe a loosely held secret. Like, I, I don't know if you guys feel this, but sometimes when people know your type, there's, there's something beautiful about it, but there's also sometimes something like awkward or even a little bit humiliating about it. So I'm, I'm happy to get into that as well. Mm. Wow. Yeah, I never really thought about you know, it, it. It certainly uh, does place us in a position of vulnerability, right? Mm-hmm. Well, listen, we love Enneagram 3 with uh, with a two wing. It's a great combination. It, for those of you who are listening, you know that it's this is called the performer, sometimes the, the achiever. And I will start with the question we uh, often do, which is how did you learn about the Enneagram? And what did you think and feel when you learned that you were a three with a two? And I'll interject before you answer. I'm really excited because here in Nashville, we get a lot of three, four wings, but this is Mm -hmm. really cool to have a two wing. Oh no, I I am a, as a neuropsychologist. That means I'm a clinical psychologist with a specialized expertise in the brain. Uh, I will help the shit out of you. <laughs> so I am, I am definitely. I love it. I will yeah. love your I will love your ass <laughs> off. That is that is right. Whether you like it or not. So. Love it. That's cool. Oh man. Okay. Where'd you learn about the enneagram? What did you think? You learned you were a three. Okay, so I don't remember the precise moment, which is wild to say, because like I adore the Enneagram. I've gotten into some of its history. The person who really opened the Enneagram for me is Father Richard Rohr. Do you, you know, he's written some beautiful books on the Enneagram. Um, and I just think it's, you know, as a as a psychologist, I'm always thinking about models of behavior. And my God, I've seen so as a neuropsychologist, we are in the business of assessing cognition and behavior. So I have seen every instrument under the sun. And there is something extraordinary about the Enneagram, which is why I'm sure you guys have an entire show devoted to it. So I just think um, it's richness, it's accuracy. Every time I do it with people, you know, sometimes I'll do it in coaching groups or people almost feel like how in the world, I, I feel found out, like how could it sort of read me that well? So I don't remember the precise moment, but I do remember once I did it, I started reading books about it. I get, I, I read no emails daily, except for a foraging email. I like to forage with my little kids. And every day I get an Enneagram meditation. And not only do I read mine, I read other types too. That's how interesting I think it is. Oh, oh wow. What's your, what is your husband? Do you know? Yes, I know. So I will tell you, he is a, he's a nuclear engineer. Would you like to take a guess? Wow. Five. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. He's a five. Hardcore. Yeah. Hardcore. <laughs> yeah. He's a hard five. And what's so interesting is like it explains every single relational conflict that Gosh, we have. Gosh, I bet that with a, as a two-wing, that had to help you out. All right. Tell me about tell me about one relational conflict that threes and twos have and how you resolve it. You mean three and five or three and two? I mean three and five. Three and five. Oh my God. So, you know, I, the threes, we love efficiency. We love it. You know, and I, I, and so I like to kind of um, multitask. And my husband is a deep, deep thinker. So I'm a gist thinker, and he is a detail. That man, bless his heart, he has like he does these <laughs> spreadsheets for our budget. He will tell you in like 2012 how much we spent on WD40. Wow. Okay, oh. it's like. So just like that level of detail, it's amazing. My brain does not work that way at all. I, I, you know, it's one of the things that attracted me to him, that he was a thinker like that. But you can imagine there's times where I'm like, oh my God, can we please move here? And he's like, oh my God, can we please slow down here? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, you know, he will say that, um, as, as a nuclear engineer, he likes to think a lot about safety planning and margin. So he was like, you as a three, because now he's learned about the Enneagram. He's like, 
you think the margins is just space to be used. He's like, that's not the function of margins. The reason we have margins is so that we don't use it. And you're constantly playing to the edges of the margins. And I'm like, yeah, that's probably true. That is great. Oh, my gosh. I love that because threes don't like details, typically. Yeah. They they are tell and sell people. And, you know, when I do corporate uh, presentations and workshops, a lot of times they'll be like, man, threes – don't bore them with the details. They just want to get out, tell, and sell. And 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 so for fives, though, those details, mm, they are yummy. They have they're, a delicious yes. quality. Now, I will say I'm a, I'm a scientist, right? So I'm very well published in the scientific literature. I've spent a lot of my years in academia. So I think I have enough de- proclivity to detail that we, that's actually um, sexiest story you'll ever hear. We really bonded over neuroscience research. You know, he was thinking about going to get a PhD in um, neuroscience. I was well on my way to becoming a neuropsychologist. So I think that kind of uh, headiness is really what attracted us to each other. And then even in my own work now, so my expertise is really the brain relationship and emotion. Um, And I do a lot of work with couples. I do a lot of work in homes with parents and couples. And like the thing that attracts us to our partners, like it's not a mistake that we pair up with the Enneagram types that we do. It's also like, the thing that on some days is going to bring us to our knees. So it's this very interesting paradox. And that's also what I love about the Enneagram, mm-hmm. like how it's really showing us like the light and the dark mm-hmm. and kind of how we can work with the levels. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, so here's a question that um, I don't think I've ever gone down. I'm a therapist, right? Not a PhD, but a master's level therapist. And I know that this is a hotly contested subject, but I am curious how would you define personality? How would I define personality? Mm. That's a, you know, I have been doing this, like all these interviews for a long time. No one's asked me that. People ask me a lot about emotion. I mean, I think personality is the, the emotional and cognitive, and then probably subsequently the behavioral structure that we live our lives through. Mm -hmm. So we walk into a situation. So I'll go back to my husband and I, my husband is, is a, is a five wing six. So he will walk into a situation and say, let me think about, let me think a lot about security. And this is, this is amazing, right? I mean, he's very thoughtful. He's very planful. He's very organized, but like we're walking into the same party. We're walking into the same event, right? So the data before us are, and I'm using air quotes, objectively the same, but how that gets filtered through Frankly, first the emotional circuits in the brain, then the cognitive, and then how that drives behavior, I would say kind of those three pieces together is what makes up personality. And it's pretty enduring, right? We don't think personality, but I'm in the business of transformation. Mm. So can can these things be changed? Absolutely. Okay, now that's going to be interesting. Let me just let me just jump in on that because I would if I were going to summarize what you just said uh, about the, the the interconnection between uh, our thinking, feeling, and uh, acting, for lack of uh, functions. I just would say that that your personality is then how you just show up for life, right? It's like how you emotionally, emotionally, cognitively, and behaviorally show up for life uh, in a predictable fashion over a long period of time. Like you just typically show up that way for life. Exactly. I agree with that. Yep. I think have kind of this energetic imprint. A lot of times people will ask me, what makes people happy, right? What makes people confident? Well, you know, I really love this word power. I think it's a beautiful word. Of course, I don't mean like command and control, coercive power. I mean, this idea of empowerment. I think there's no, we all know there's no, it's not like the way you want to be happy is you're really going to want to be an accountant. You're going to want to like, it's like, so there's no one single situation. What leads to happiness is we have three engines and we just kind of talked about them, right? We have three energetic engines of what it means to be human. One is our feeling, one is our thinking, and one is our behaving. When those three things are integrated, the way that we're kind of wired, when we kind of, again, walk into the party and we're really behaving and thinking and feeling all in alignment, this is the fullest expression of a human being. And I would argue to you, if you want to understand the neuroscience of the highest levels of the Enneagram, it is the person that is thinking in alignment with the way that they are feeling and that behavior is in alignment. And so a lot of times 
when we kind of fall down the Enneagram levels, it's because we start to break off our feeling from the way that we are thinking and behaving. Mm. So I'll, I'll give you guys a couple of examples, right? It's like, all right, I really, um, I'm really exhausted. I'm exhausted. My, my feeling system, my emotional system is saying I'm exhausted and that I need rest. What do I do? I overwork. And that moment, I have literally divided one of my engines of being from these two other engines, right? Another common example is I want to speak up. I have something on my heart and my mind that I want to share. I have something I want to create. I have an idea that I kind of want to, it's not the most common idea, but I think it's really cool. What do I actually do? I keep my mouth shut. Another big one that the Enneagram tells us is how to relate to other people. So a lot of times we need boundaries around people. I'm really going to start saying no more often. What do I do when the rubber hits the road? I'm saying yes. In all of those moments, I have divided my energy. And I don't just mean this metaphysically. I mean it quite neurobiologically. I have divided the energy of my emotions. All emotions are our neuroelectrical signals of the brain from the energy of how I'm thinking and behaving. And when we, if you do that a few times a month, so even a week, you're probably going to be fine. But when we're doing this over and over and over again, it causes us to feel bad. And when we feel bad, you know, if we're using the Enneagram system, this is what causes us to descend down the levels. Mm. So, yeah, what, the word that keeps coming up to me is when you're talking about is dissonance, right? We experience, yes. right, cognitive dissonance, emotional dissonance when there's not alignment. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's almost like when in the back of a Swiss watch, when the cog, all these cogs are, are working, if one elevates a little bit higher than the others, then the teeth start to grind. Correct. So if you, so if you have three cogs, which is what you're talking about, and one goes janky, Right or isn't aligned, then everything's the all the teeth start to fly off in different directions. You're totally right, and I think you know what we all kind of understand when we really look at it is like the first time it happens, the second time it happens, the seventh time it happens, no problem. But the things where I think we really kind of descend into pain in our lives, almost all of our problems, the pain is really coming through the chronicity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the ways that we keep trying to function in a way that's not aligned with how we're wired to function. Wow. That's fantastic. I, I, I love where this conversation is, is heading. And I want to talk a little bit about transformation because you said earlier you're in the transformation business, something to that effect. Is that right? I do think about that. Yes, I do think yeah. that's accurate. So it's interesting. And I often, you know, I'm a little bit agnostic when I think about this topic, right? But in traditional Enneagram teaching, people would say that your type is your type for life, right? That there is an unconscious embedded yes. motivation. And I'm always like, okay, you know, because I'm not a determinist. I'm not somebody who's like, oh, you're stuck. You know, it's like, I'm actually pretty optimistic that people change. And so I, I, let's talk about just for a moment about the difference between transformation and evolution. Like, Interesting. Yeah. yeah like, say more about that. Say more, well, say more about that. Well, I think if the Enneagram types don't change, but it's clear that people do. I mean, I'm 62. I, I hope I'm a lot different than I was at 22. I mean, good Lord. Tell me, remind right. me what your type is. I know that I- I'm a four. Four wing what? Three. Okay. And what are you? Four wing five. I would say three huh? earlier in my life, but definitely more five now for sure. Okay. Yeah. Got it. So okay, keep going. I think that people- it's sort of like I said, I, I tend to be agnostic. I kind of go, eh, well, we'll see. What I do believe in is that people evolve. So you can evolve within type. Transformation, if what we mean by that is, oh, I used to be a four, but now I'm a seven. Hmm. Enneagram would say, no, that's not true. I can say I'm a four, but I have evolved and uh, I, I've picked up quite a bit of seven energy or traits uh, that weren't there when I was a younger person. You know, I've sort of incorporated more of that into my life. So because again, they're all I, available I am, to us, right? That's yes. I think we're all nine types, and so we just are dominant in one. Mm -hmm. And so I just, I guess, the thing is, it's like a very dare I say spiritual thing going on here. Like, and in, in however people want to play with that word, I don't want to get everybody freaked. But the point being that I think. I have evolved, but have I changed my type? I don't think so. 
So that's a really interesting point. And I I mean, listen, I'm I'm just conjecturing here, but this is kind sure. of how I think about it is I think, um, well, this part is not conjectured. So you we kind of understand neuroscientifically, neuropsychologically, that people have basically there's a there's kind of a code to how we're wired. And then there's a lot of play within that. So in other words, like if, you know, your, your height is a perfect example, your eye color is a perfect example. We also know that there's like, there's genetic underpinnings to uh, ability levels, right? And there's a lot of plasticity there as well. When I think about the Enneagram, I think that there's all of this. And I think that's what you were using the term evolution. There's all of this dynamism, right? To keep going up the levels and up the levels and up the levels. I do sort of think that at the highest level of what, you know, again, you're kind of using this term like self-actualization or it becomes kind of the spiritual thing. I really do think there starts to be this unitive consciousness mm-hmm. that when I am truly no longer afraid of the parts of myself that I hate about myself, you know, it's this idea of light and dark. Now, I don't even mean dark has a very moralistic and light has a very moral. I don't actually, let's be very agnostic or very dispassionate about this. I think a lot of our darkness quite literally just means unknown. Yeah. So we we have this, if you think about it, I want to I talk sort of about emotion for a second. It's like, this is so reductionistic. It's almost like, I think it's so powerful. You do not have a single problem in your life not a single problem until you have a bad feeling about it. In other words, if you guys were like, Julia, you are the worst guest that's ever been on this show. We are hanging up the phone. Like it was just like a, just a dumpster fire. And I genuinely did not feel bad. I was not humiliated. I was not embarrassed. I was not ashamed. There would be no problem. Okay. So we have to understand that like when we, the parts of ourself that we don't want to see we don't want to see them. The only reason is because they don't feel good. Oh, that part about me is too gross. Oh, that's too embarrassing. If people knew that about me, right? So it's in this energy of fear. It Once I start to say, I, I, I start to work through that, and you can kind of argue, is there is there an end or is it a, a journey without destination? But once I kind of say there is no longer anything, because I do think that the fundamental human fear is always about shame, and I'm happy to talk about some of my clinical work and research about how I got to this decision, is when I'm able to say, I'm not ashamed, and not just say it, but really feel it, I am unstoppable, I am free. And at that level of expression, am I still more of a three or a six or a seven than some? Yeah, my brain's going to work in certain ways, especially if I'm older than one years old. But I think we now start to access the power of all the nine types. Beautiful. I, I love that. And right now, by the way, I'm, I'm looking something up for you. I'm not checking. I always tell people, I'm not checking my text when I look to the side here. Um, Interestingly, we have a good friend uh, named Dr. Kurt Thompson. He's a psychiatrist. He's done a lot of work around shame. He's been doing it for 20 years. And he said something to me once that was so powerful. He said, you know, it's really not the mental experience of shame. What we're afraid of with shame is the physical bodily sensation Mm -hmm. of shame that we are so frightened of. And, you know, and he's, I I just had never thought about the physical dimension of shame and how powerful uh, an aversive experience it is. So watch this. So the brain is so interesting. So we know that in, in there's definitely parts of the brain that process all pain the same, right? So obviously this idea of interoception, my body's ability to feel itself. I burn my hand on a hot stove or somebody says something that really hurts my feelings. There's the same parts of the brain. But think about this. Think about a time when you really physically hurt yourself. So here's one from me. My husband has this bike rack on the back of his car and you would you cannot see it. Like it's out of your periphery and he has it on there sometimes and he doesn't have it on there sometimes. Can you see where this is going? So this one day I go to close, I go to close the trunk and man, I got my clock cleaned. Okay. It was horrible. But like, I'm telling you that story and it was bad, but I don't feel it. Okay. I have um, like... I tell the story in Energy Rising in the book. This I'm I'm short, okay? And I, I do not like, I do a lot of public speaking and I do not like podium. So this one time I had to go talk, I, I even telling you now I can like feel the heat coming and it's not even that embarrassing. But I was at the podium and it was this huge auditorium. The MC is Mike and it's my turn to go. And the MC says to me, can you please stand up? 
And I had to say to everyone, oh, I am standing. To which, of course, everyone like erupted. The MC is like mortified. But I remember just feeling like I wanted to like melt into the floor. Mm. I was like, is this a very good reason to like move to the woods and live off the land never to be seen or heard from again? (laughs) Okay. So like even when I tell that story, like I still feel a little bit of the heat. So emotional pain is stored in the body, in the nervous system differently than physical pain. So when your friend is telling you that this experience of shame is so somatic, it's so visceral, it's so like the body just responds to it, it's entirely accurate. And until we're able to feel the feeling, we're really going to be stuck there. Mm. You know, it's interesting to me, um, I, I, and I think this is going to really relate to the Enneagram as well, but I just want to say why I named the book Energy Rising. So I thought I thought more about naming this book than I did my own children, okay? And that's, you know, in part because this thing gestated in me longer. But the body knows the body and the brain. It's, you're brilliantly designed, and it knows how to get rid of waste, okay? So like we eat food, we pass it. We take in oxygen, we put out carbon dioxide. Every 27 days, the skin cells go. I have foreign invaders in my what system? My immune system ejects them. But there's something unique, I would, I would argue, about emotions that feel bad. In other words, toxic emotions, that when they start to rise in us, I'm not feeling that. And then we avoid the sensation by starting to engage in some of the very pathological behaviors of our Enneagram type. In mm-hmm. my case, as you now know, is I am I am the achiever. So my, my Achilles heel is overworking. If I work enough, I will be good enough. Why? Because I won't feel the feelings, right? So, and we all have our own addictions, meaning our own ways of avoiding, distracting, numbing, scrolling. So the feeling rises, shove it down. The feeling rises, overwork. The feeling rises, go have fun. The feeling rises, think about it some more, right? Like you can see how all the types can play here. You do that for 10 years, 20 years, 70 years. I'm not exaggerating. This is what happens. You become emotionally constipated. So the nervous system over 150 million years is designed to literally feel feelings. And instead of just letting the energy move through the system and pass the way the body knows how to pass things, we just put it down, put it down, put it down, put it down. And then over time, our our kind of piping, so to speak, is clogged. So then somebody says something to me I don't like or somebody cuts me off at the stop sign And I am like, because I'm so kind of plugged up, I don't really have the clarity to respond to that with my, with kind of this robust intelligence. So what do you do with somebody that says, I've experienced trauma and, uh, there are feelings that I am afraid to have, uh, for fear of them flooding me. And, you know, my just decompensating, my just falling apart if uh, were, were I to revisit these feelings and to discharge them in a healthy manner. Like, because I, I, I know you've done work around trauma and it appears in the book. You have good news about trauma, I think. Um, have, talk, yes, I yeah, yeah, come on, bring to. it. So first of all, I think that's a wonderful, wonderful question because I think a lot of people totally understandably have this concern. What I would like to do, if it's okay with you, is tell a story because I think it will be really powerful and elucidating this. Is that okay? Yeah, sure. Okay. I tell the story in the book too. And I, so most of my work is, is around trauma. So most fundamentally, I'm a neuropsychologist that thinks about trauma and most of our trauma happens in relationships. So I've worked with a lot of very, very extreme trauma. It is not uncommon at all. What you're saying is when we come into process trauma, survivors will start to say, you could, I might have a stroke. I might throw up, I might urinate, I might die, my head might explode, right? So there's, and a lot of times we're not even, it even takes a while to put those thoughts into language, just the sensation. Like if I start to talk about this thing, it's going to be absolutely awful. Hmm. So I'm going to share with your listeners a story of a combat veteran. And it's really extreme trauma. And the reason I actually chose this example, because I obviously have lots of very much more common examples, is because if this is true at the most extreme levels of human suffering and behavior, of course, there's tremendous power for us to glean across the continuum of emotion. Okay. 
So this guy comes to see me and he had been back now for years and years and years. And he had been in the context, his trauma had happened in the context of a convoy. So I say, I'm like his last ditch effort. So he finally comes in for treatment. PTSD is so debilitating, but for a lot of reasons, people don't want to seek treatment. And that's, you know, there's a lot to do around stigma and this stuff. So I say, well, what have you, tell me what you've been doing. And he says, well, I don't drive anymore. I don't go to restaurants. I uh, don't really go out at all. He, the most devastating thing was he, his children were now grown, but when they were little, you know, little kids are volatile and noisy and that's very hard on the nervous system of someone who has PTSD. So he couldn't tolerate that. He was getting into a lot of arguments with his wife. The most devastating thing that happened is his, he and his wife actually split up. He was getting in a lot of, you know, PTSD. One of the symptoms is irritability. He was getting in a lot of altercations at work. So basically what he is saying to me is I had this horrible thing happen to me many, many years ago, but the energy, the emotional energy is still very much alive in my nervous system. And as a function of this, I have now cut myself off from all these things driving, movies, relationships, working, an attempt to not let the external world hit my junk. Because when the external world hits my junk, it's, it's, uh, it's terrible for me. So I say that makes perfect sense. Avoidance is almost always the initial frontline response to pain, as it should be. Because if I put my hand on a hot stove, I shouldn't call quickly call a therapist and be like, hey, so listen, my hand's on a hot stove right now. I'm kind of wondering, do you have anything? Just pull your hand off the stove, right? So avoidance actually works. Like if the car is coming, jump out of the way. The problem with our emotional lives is this tends to not work. Mm-hmm. So I say, I have great news. We have a very, very strong evidence base. We have, and the front line evidence-based treatment for this says, instead of avoiding talking about your trauma, we're going to talk about it and we're going to talk about it over and over and over. And then you're going to record yourself and you're going to go home and listen to it. And he was like, do they pay you to do this shit? Because that is like the worst idea I've ever heard. Like, have you not heard me? Right. So um, he was actually really funny and so courageous. And part of the therapeutic process, as you well know, is you you do psychoeducation and you build trust and the patients are in control. So finally he says, all right, I'm going to do it. He walks into my office around, let's say, week 12. He walks and he, he holds up the phone and he was like, doc, I can't do this anymore. So I'm like, okay, sounds like something's going on. Sit down and tell me. He says, every time I listen to this thing, I fall asleep It's dull as heck. So this thing that had literally tormented him for, for, I I mean, it was many, many years is now that we've, we've truly transformed the relationship with the energy. It is now so boring. It lulls him to sleep. Wow. So what I would say in response to your question about people who say I had something that happened to me, but I really can't face it, or I have a difficult conversation I want to have with someone, but I just can't face it, or there's something I want to go after in my life, but I just don't think I can deal with the pain of rejection. I would actually say if if we're really scientific about it, the pain of avoidance is much more suffocating and painful than the pain of working through it. And so one of the things I say, and I talk about this in Energy Rising, is our work is not to avoid pain. That's like trying to find a place to live where there just is no gravity. It's like, good luck with that, okay? Our work is to say in a life that promises us pain, what is the more powerful pain? What is the pain that strengthens me and empowers me? And in the case of the veteran, it was like there was the pain of avoidance, which was taking everything from his life. It was putting his life in like this gray monotone color. And then there was the pain of, of doing the trauma treatment. There absolutely is a more powerful pain. And, and then as you work through the pain and you heal, you reach a new baseline. You see? So it's like you get to kind of make peace with the past and evolve, to use your word. Mm. That's amazing. I love what you just said. Because, you know, actually, it's so interesting, right? Philosophers, I think Montaigne, who said, you know, he who avoids suffering suffers most. Uh, and, and so, I mean, this is, these are just great human truths, aren't they? That um, we, we, and, and you, we, you were talking earlier, we were talking about uh, shadow and light. So much, I think, of the journey of life is 
learning how to look pain in the eye and just make something better of it. And, and you know, that's kind of been my, kind of my life story. It's, that's so powerful. Mm. I think, I mean, if you just look around, what, what other relation, I mean, you could choose to try to avoid it, but it doesn't seem to work. Mm. If it did, I think we would, I mean, I think we're all so intelligent. There's an intelligence to the way we're white. Like we would all avoid it if we could. Right. The other thing that I think is so interesting is that no one asks these questions on the physical health side, really. It's like people understand, hey, I want to get physically stronger. I need to, I need to work. I need to like hold more physical resistance. I need to go for a run. I need to go lift weights. No one ever says, you know how I'm going to get stronger tonight. I'm going to sit on the couch and binge watch 20 episodes of, I don't know, love is blind on Netflix and eat a lot of hot Cheetos. Wait a minute. That doesn't work. Well, so right. So you might say, I don't want to go to the gym today. I'm going to sit on the couch and binge watch Netflix, but I am not confused. I am not confused by why I am not getting more physically strong. What I see happen, and I think that like this is such, this is why I love doing podcasts like this with you is like a lot of times people will start to say, I'm swimming in my emotions. Things are feeling hopeless. This can't, and the issue is always there's, there's always a fix. You just have to understand intelligently how to work Mm -hmm. with the emotions. And as we work more intelligently with, when we think about the Enneagram system, it's only a, It's only emotional enlightenment that's driving us up the hierarchy. Hmm. Hey, everybody. One of the lessons I've learned over the years is that not everybody benefits from a traditional 50-minute counseling session. And this is why some people can go to couples therapy or personal counseling for a long time and never really get anywhere. This is why I'm such a believer of intensive counseling and my friends at Restoring the Soul in Colorado, created by my longtime friend Michael Cusick to help couples or individuals experience deep change and have day blocks over one or two weeks. Now listen, if you can't wait months or years to get to the bottom of an issue or to experience breakthrough, you need to get in touch with my friend Michael and his extraordinary team of counselors at Restoring the Soul. If you're looking to get out of the rut you're in, but can't wait months or years, call Restoring the Soul today for a free consultation with Michael's staff. Call 303-932-9777 and learn how their intensive counseling process can help you. As a special bonus, just for Typology listeners, make sure to visit www.restoringthesoul.com slash typology to download their PDF called Five Ways Unaddressed Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationships. So I, I'm a four, as, as I mentioned, and you know, we are uh, people in particular, so I'll describe myself as a 25-year-old. Um, it was very hard for me to uh, separate who I was from my feelings, right? So labile mood, like almost borderline-y. I mean, like all over the map, right? Happy, sad, wistful, this, right? And, and so forth and so on. Uh, issues with addiction to cope with mood states that are kind of running around all over the place. But highly creative, an artist. Um, so, you know, out of those spaces, you can write great songs or you can get it, get yourself into all kinds of trouble avoiding those big, bigger than life feelings. Right now, what over time talking about evolution, as I grew older, as a person did a lot of therapy, a lot of work, what I learned to do was, and I did this through some spiritual uh, practices was I learned how to, uh, how do I say this, develop an inner observer who could stand back and in real time monitor and regulate uh, and have a conversation with the way that I was acting, thinking, and feeling uh, in any given moment and begin to titrate and go, okay, well, that feeling's got to pull that back. And now critical thinking needs to get brought up, you know, and, and I, you know, but I could actually literally learn to stand back. And I'm, I'm saying all this because so much of what you talk about in the book, and it's actually in the subtitle, right, is this whole idea of emotional power, right? And I have to believe that you know, this ability to, we can call it self-awareness, we call it emotional intelligence, we can call it whatever you want to call it. This has a lot to do with neuroscience. Am I right? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, first of all, that's an incredible story. Can I just ask you a question? Oh, come on. Oh, please. (laughs) So like, where are you? Where are you? You know, you had talked about this idea of like evolution through the levels and obviously Hmm. emotions are, I just think they're everything, right? Because like, it doesn't matter what we have. Hmm. It matters how we feel about what we have. It doesn't matter what we do. It matters about how we feel about Hmm. what we do. So where are you in this, in this journey, this transformation or this evolution? Yeah. Well, I mean, as regards emotions, it's interesting. I was actually, I have a coaching client. He's a young, terrifically successful Silicon Valley guy. And he's always saying, I'm anxious. I'm anxious. I said, no, you're not actually, you're not anxious. You know, I said, why don't you just say, instead of that, say anxiety is here right now. Anger is here right now. You're not angry. You just say anger is here. Right. Don't become so over-identified with this feeling that now you have become the source of, of your problem. Because all these things are weather patterns. They're coming, they're going, right? Let's not let's not get too attached, right? So I just say, so when people ask me, so this is this is an example of evolution, right? I no longer think, I try not to think, oh, I'm anxious, oh, I'm happy, oh, I'm this. I go, oh, look, happiness is here. Like I'm separate. I I feel like I'm also, I think it's a very spiritual idea too, right? Like I am not my feelings. They are sort of passing energies and, you know, I I live in the world with them. I rejoice in them, but I don't want to get over-identified with them. Now, has the weather pattern for you calmed down as a whole or the weather is still as tumultuous? You just have a different relationship with the weather. Well, it has calmed down as a whole. So in other words, you know, I, I right now, people who can't see me, I, my fingers going up and down. Maybe that was at 25, these dramatic shifts, you know, up mm-hmm. and down. And now they're more like this, you know, like, and, and, but that's come with age, right? And that's come with, you know, sort of the suffering born of the wisdom born of some suffering and over time. But I, I would say that I'm not nearly as uh, caught up in the ongoing soap opera that we call my life. You know, I, I'm a little mm-hmm. bit more uh, not indifferent or dispassionate about it, but I, I'm able to sort of stand back from it and Can I jump in it. on that? Yeah. Because <clears throat> I have a similar story to Ian where I definitely over-identified with my feelings. And of course, we know you, you, you're feeling multiple things every nanosecond. You're constantly changing what you're feeling. And so I would say, I don't know, I don't know if the weather system has calmed down for me, but I don't, I so am separate from identifying with what I'm feeling that I am calm, even though the weather system may not be. And mm-hmm. also I see feelings as an opportunity to connect with what I need because I think your feelings are connected to needs. So I appreciate them in ways I didn't appreciate before. I'm more informed by them, but I, I don't identify with them. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I, it's, I think what you both said is like so insightful. And obviously like you've, you've done so much work and have so much expertise here. I love the way that you described it as, as kind of weather patterns and like anxiety is here or grief is here. You know, the way I will think about it is it's like, like radio frequencies. Like if we took a radio right now, we could tune into Mm 101.9. So it's not that 101.9 is not here right now. It's just that we're not tuned into it. So I do think at every moment they're like the they're, the frequency of grief is here right now. Yes. The frequency of rage is here right now. The frequency of laughter, the frequency, right? So I think that we, and this is why um, objective reality is still, there's no debate that objective reality still is mediated by everyone's own individual brain, right? So we're all, and obviously there's kind of a collective consciousness, but how could two people walk into the same room? In fact, I think one of the most compelling examples of this is we know that people's response to trauma, so a lot of research in this domain, people's response to very similar traumas can be very different. You can have one at the extreme, you can have one person develop post-traumatic stress disorder and you can have someone else develop post-traumatic growth. Right. Every, we, yeah. so it, go ahead. No, I, 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 I'm fascinated by the, by the whole subject of post-traumatic growth. So we're going to have you back on to talk about that because I think it's a great topic. It is, right? And and why, what does it take to be available to that? Why? And obviously, I think 
there's a lot of reasons. We have different genetics. I think absolutely we've had different childhoods, but you also see people that don't have those things working that don't seem to have those things working in their favor. And they still, so it's this idea, you know, one of the, um, there's a story that I think is like, have you guys ever seen the Polar Express? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'll just, and I have little kids, so we like watch it. There's this great scene, okay, where basically there's two kids and they're talking to this one kid and the, and the one kid is really sad. And he's really sad because Christmas never works out for him. He's kind of this like downtrodden, dejected, sweet little boy. So they are, ab- they are on this magical train and they are about to pull up to the North Pole. And this little kid is just sitting there talking to the two friends who are super excited to see the fat man in the red suit. And this little boy is going, Christmas just never works out for me. He's a Christmas four. Christmas just that never works out for me. <laughs> you know what? He probably is. And the thing that I'm thinking is like, this is so, my kids are watching this. And of course I'm a psychologist. So they have to put up with my nonsense. And like, we have to process this. But I'm like, it's so fascinating that here's this little kid on a magical train about to arrive in the North Pole. He's living this like dream that so many kids would love to to have. And he's talking at that exact moment about how Christmas will not work out for him. Every reality is available to us. Now, I don't mean to say that there's not work that we have had to do. Everything exists on a continuum. But what I am telling you is even in my own practice, I have worked with people who if they said I'm not getting up again, you would say, I understand. You have every reason to stay down. So when people rise, why do they choose to rise? Mm-hmm. What is that process? I just think there's so much hope and so much healing in that in that message. And this idea that, like, do we create everything about our reality? Absolutely not. But we also are a powerful co-creator with it. Yes. Yeah. And it's so interesting. You just said, Anthony, we're talking, we were talking earlier before we, we came on with you. And I, I was reminded in, because of the conversation of a, I, I can't remember if it's James Hillman or if it's Carl Jung, who, who said that, you know, it, what happened to you in childhood is not nearly as important as what you think happened mm-hmm. to you in childhood. Wow. Mm-hmm. Right. So in other words, we all have, you know, as you said, you can have, I grew up in a home with a, a, a very violent alcoholic, drug addicted father. I have three siblings. I can tell you that we had four very different interpretations of what that experience meant. That we, we all four of us assigned different meaning Correct. to the experience, right? So for one sibling, it might be what this means is that, uh, you know, we live in a, a might makes right world where the powerful always uh, subjugate the weak, and I will never be that weak person. By the way, this could turn you into an Enneagram 8 challenger, right? Or it could contribute to that outcome. Um, and, and, you know, I had a very different sort of relationship with the experience. I think what we're talking here, too, is a little bit about resilience, right? Like, um, you know, some people seem to me to be constitutionally advantaged in that regard. Like some people just seem to be naturally more resilient. They just are bouncers, you know, yes. uh, more so And obviously than other like people. environment place, like some of us have had better right. childhoods and we've had more resources. And like, right. that's, uh, I mean, this is why the social justice conversation is so important too. So there's mm-hmm. all of these factors, but yeah. keep going on about your family. I think this is a really important and fascinating thing. Well, I, I was just going to say that I feel like, it's um, it's given me tremendous compassion, you know, like just recognizing that that not everybody is operating with the same toolkit, you know. And now I do think resilience to some degree can be learned. I just think it's harder for some people than it, it you know, for other people. I think they just, like I said, constitutionally, I'm not even sure if that's the right word, but but temperamentally, dispositionally, whatever the term is, like, I think I'm a bouncer. I bounce back, you know, like I was a fighter inside. I was a very sensitive fighter, but I I took a lot of hits and just kept coming back. I have another sibling who didn't come back at all in the same, same experience, you know, now, but of course the things that you're talking about would really help this particular member of, of my family find healing and, and new life, you know, um, so I'm going to be excited to pass it off to this person and, uh, and hope that they 
that they really take it to heart. I think too, like the, the work of self-awareness, you know, I know these words can sound so buzzy and what do they really mean? But it's just so, it's so life-giving. You know, I think the mm. way our world works, especially now, is we're so pulled externally. So we're living in this age of machines. And what's very interesting as a neuropsychologist is the machines have outpaced us cognitively, right? So in terms of retention abilities and recall abilities and information processing and information processing speed, But we're still in a lot of ways trying to keep up the constant scrolling, the constant like attempts to stay relevant. Even if you're not like trying to have a social media, you know, you're just like consuming information all day long. Well, your brain really, I mean, unconsciously, it's like, you know, still letting you breathe and you can walk and talk. But in terms of like processing information, you really can't multitask. So if I'm constantly being pulled outward, there's, there's an inner cost to that. And really what we understand about wellness is it's about balance. Even when we think about the healthiest brain, the healthiest brain, and we talked about this earlier, is the integrated brain, right? So we think of like, even take a disorder like PTSD. We think it's, we used to think it was just a fear-based disorder. That's not the accurate description. It's a, it's a, affective by cognitive dysfunction, meaning the way that I'm feeling and the way that I'm thinking about how I'm feeling, there's disturbances Mm -hmm. there, right? So if all of that is just to kind of say as a metaphor, it's like in this modern world where we're constantly pulled out, are we really making time for the inner work? Mm-hmm. And then when we make time for the inner work, I think this is a, this is like the next level of this conversation is like, are we wise about it? So let me, let me, I'll just give you this example. I tried to do, so I I work, I like to work out. It's like my, I feel like everyone has a thing. Like some people's is sleep and some people is the right that for me, it's like, I I need movement. So I was like, all right, today I'm going to do yoga. But my brain, you know, like with the book launch coming, like I just have like so much energy in my body. We're going back to school. Like the little kids are going back to school. So my body is just like, So I start to do yoga and I am a mess. I'm like getting up. I'm like, I'm literally drinking coffee during the yoga. I'm like, there's so many things that are wrong with this. Okay. So then I'm like, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to lift. I'm going to lift heavy. I'm going to put on a, I'm going to put on a different. And then I was like, no, you know what? I'm going to do this. And it was mid the whole, the whole 45 minutes was absolutely miserable. I was annoyed. I wanted that feeling where you just kind of want to peel your, I'm a big feeler. I wanted to peel my skin off. And I was like, if I think the work is really bad, either I'm not doing the work or it's great. I have the candles lit. I'm having very interesting conversations. I'm journaling while also burning sage and like putting crystals on my head. And like, it's like, no, a lot of times the work, especially the expansive work is like, can I stay with the work when I want to peel my skin off? And and I even think conversations about that, because I think this idea of self-care or like doing this introspective work, it sounds like I'm in this amazing retreat in Costa Rica, like drinking out of a pineapple. Like, I don't know, maybe sometimes, but like we got, you got to sit with the distress, right? Like this idea of distress tolerance. The only way to get stronger is to hold more resistance, this is so great. It and is. by the way, everybody, just to remind you, we're talking to our new friend, Dr. Julia Deganji, author of Energy Rising, the Neuroscience of Leading with Emotional Power. This has been such an amazing, I don't even want this conversation to end. And I want to just say one little thing that I'm now going to use if it's okay, but I, I, I've sort of taken, extracted it from our conversation it, with my corporate clients uh, and some of my sort of my, my more they're not consult. They're sort of therapeutically informed coaching clients, right? So, uh, I'd say that I love this idea that with AI, we are no longer able, or we will very shortly be absolutely no longer able to cognitively keep up with machines. But which means that we, if we can no longer rely on cognitive or you know uh, intellectual intelligence, right? Necessarily. We, we can turn our attention inwardly toward emotional intelligence. Oh, my which God. A, which a machine keep, cannot do. Keep going. Keep going. I'm list, I am here for this. Yeah. <laughs> well, which a machine can't do, right? So, okay, so, so, so we can become what people in the world, uh, some of these other machines, they do this, but they can't do this piece. And so this piece I can develop. 
Ian, that is so beautiful. And I, I mean, who, none of us have a crystal ball, right? But like, this is also, I, I, I am so aligned with what you're saying. And it really also makes sense to me from a neurologic point of view. So I always say that we will colonize, we will colonize Saturn before we figure out how to speak nice to each other on social media. Mm. The most elite form of intelligence is relational intelligence. I don't know why it's this way, but here we are in the human condition and just look around. It's like all of our problems are all interpersonal, right? And obviously we bring ourselves to that. So there's like intrapersonal stuff too. But I think right now, you know, there's really this remarkable moment for, I don't even think it's optimism. I think it just is for potential. It's like right now we're being squeezed. And so you use this beautiful term earlier, evolution. I think what we are seeing humanity undergo right now is the most extraordinary evolution in emotional and relational intelligence. Because mm. we're either going to get stopped by the machines or we're going to have to, like to your point, lean back on our competitive advantage. And our competitive advantage is the ability to work in emotional and relational dynamics. Mm. Okay. But then what okay. That, can I say one other thing? Oh, then what does on. that mean? I don't need, I mean, I think it's, I think it's incredible to talk more readily about joy and hope and confidence and resilience, but you can't talk about those things until you're also willing to talk about the dark side. The night only exists because there is also the day and the day only exists because there's also the night. And so everything that we want in this lifetime is on the other side of the feelings we keep telling ourselves we can't feel. Oh. You want more confidence, you have to learn how to work with the energy of doubt. You want more peace, you have to come into a new relationship with the energy of uncertainty. You want more intimacy and more connection, you need to come into a new relationship with rejection. So, you know, to go back to the example of the combat veteran I used, it was like everything changed when he came into a new relationship with the feelings he swore, he swore he could not feel. Will you be my therapist? <laughs> I don't know. I might need you to be mine, and that could be a conflict of interest. <laughs> wow, what a conversation. I'm just so grateful. It's so, so powerful. I want to thank our, our new friend, Dr. Julia DeGangi. She is an Enneagram 3 with a two wing. She brought the conversation today. Uh, she is the author of this amazing new book, Energy Rising, the Neuroscience of Leading with Emotional Power. And if you, based on this conversation, uh, the content and the spirit of it, if, if it has not convinced you to go buy this book, please rewind to the beginning of the interview and listen more carefully <laughs> because it has been such a privilege and a pleasure to, to have this time with you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It was truly a pleasure. I love the Enneagram, so I was so delighted when I got this invitation. Wow. Awesome. Hey, everybody, you know what I'm going to say, but take it to heart. May you have love. May you have joy. May you have peace. May you have healing. And may you have rest. Until next time.